You're listening to a DM podcast. Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to inspirational people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser and this is The Stick Up. Ron Isherwood grew up in poverty with a psychopathic father who was a part of the Australian crime organisation, Painters and Dockers. Crime and addiction were a big part of Ron's life. Today, Ron helps others with compassion and empathy through his podcast and his business, The Truth About Addiction. Ron, welcome to The Stick Up. Thanks, Russell. Thanks for having me on, mate. Tell us a little bit about where did it all start? I knew you grew up in Melbourne. I knew you, you know, what I know of, your father was a painter and docker, which can, and can you just sort of ex, look, explain where you grew up and what being a painter and docker was? I was born in Victoria in Swan Hill, which is a couple of hours out of Melbourne. My old man was a career criminal, um, petty crime, you know, like you know, a good fighter. He was a good boxer. He was a fighter, he broke horses in and all that stuff. But in a little town, you get into trouble really badly. And he broke a copper's jaw and got kicked out of town, basically. He moved straight to Melbourne. They put him on straight away. As when a you say they, who? Well, the underworld in Melbourne, the painters and dockers. They put him on as a doorman in the legal gambling casinos. Yeah. And he went from there. The Melbourne painters and dockers back in the 50s and 60s were a bunch of criminal organisation that mm. ran all the crime. Yeah. Everybody... That was a criminal works on the waterfront, and you couldn't get a job on the waterfront unless you were family and born into that crime family. Well, my old man was down there, and this is 1956, and um, he, he went through the ranks really quickly. You know, he, he started off just on the door. Next thing, he was own, owning in one of the two up clubs and the gambling casinos, and you still always made out you walked in, you worked in the wharfs because if the coppers came and grabbed hold of you and said, "Where were you at seven o'clock on Thursday, the fifth of September?" I was at work. Mm. Then they'd go and check the books and because you've rang them and told them that you're at work and the coppers had come and they go, no, he was here. So, you know, those days they didn't have computers. So it was an organised crime. But also we stole off the boats. They stole off the boats, you know, like because we didn't have containers. Yeah, uh, I remember those days. Yeah, yeah unloading hand by hand. So everything, we, you know, we were as poor as, as mouses. You know, we had electric toothbrushes and we had anything that could be stolen off the wharf was stolen off the wharf, you know. Um, so my old man... He basically was a bully, a standover man. That's what he really was. But he was a gambler, a big gambler. And he was a horse breaker and a professional boxer. So he went into the crime world as a really respected tough guy, mm. super respected tough guy. Big com- Good combination, horse breaker. People who any break, break horses, ride bulls, boxers, they're all people that are defined by their toughness. Exactly, exactly. And that was my dad. My old man was... Horse breaker. My uncle Kevin fought in the tents. I fought in the tents when I was eight years of age. I was fighting in the tents at eight years of age. So our whole family grew up tough. You had to be tough, and you didn't tell on people. I remember doing some. Like I'm a boxing aficionado, and I remember coming across uh, like uh, there was a book. It was called Australian Fighters, and it. And I'm come across a photo of your father mm. as a boxer, as a recognised boxer. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, the old man was a good boxer. He boxed with some of the greatest boxers in Australian history at that time. When, when I look back on it, I, I, you know, back then, boxing was never on the back pages of the, of the papers. It was always on the front page of the papers. Those people, they were heroes back then. And they were tough, you know. I remember him fighting for the Australian title. It must have been 64, 65, something like that. And he, did, he had a broken hand. Yeah. And they rang him up and said, oh, the, bloke, the other bloke was supposed to fight. It's lost. Something's happened. He can't fight. He cut the plaster off his hand and went and fought a 10-round main event. Yeah. You know, yeah. And got a cup and 50, 50 quid. You know, that was what it was. He got a you know, silly silver cup and 50 quid. So just let's backtrack a little bit. Where were you born? Swan Hill in Victoria. And um, and sort of where was your upbringing? Like what was school like? What was family life like? Well, school to me, I moved to Melbourne in, in 1956. So I was two years of age. Went to primary schools. We were really poor. As I said, the old man was a punter. So one week you'd be eating fish and chips. The next week you'd be eating bread and dripping. Mm. You know, and a lot of people that don't know what dripping is. Dripping is just the fat. Yeah, the white fat. And they'd put that on the bread, you know. And when, when I was a child, you ate bread for dinner and the bread would go stale overnight because bread never had all the bullshit in it. Yeah. And you ate it for breakfast with milk. Yeah. And then mum would make a pudding out of the bread and butter pudding. So bread was the staple food for, for the poor people. What are your siblings? Do you have any siblings? Uh, I've got two older sisters at the time. Yeah. Um, one was a stepsister, one's a full sister. What was school like for you? Um, school was, to me, my old man didn't believe in education. His attitude was, you're not going to learn anything at school. You're not going to learn anything at school. <laughs> because what you're going to do is, I was, I was groomed. Mm. I was groomed to be a criminal. I was groomed. You know, there's no other word you can use. Yeah. You know, I was climbing through factories at, well, my first conviction is in 1966. I'm 12 years of age for a major shop break and everything steel. And I'd break into big buildings. And that they had Where did a, you learn that skill from? Just family. Just I, it, was, it was okay to be a thief. Okay. I had to steal food to eat. Mm. On the way to school, my sister and I would steal fruit. Mm. Otherwise, we didn't have fruit for, you know, we didn't have fruit. The army was put all the money on the horses. I was very as fit. As a kid, did you did you feel secure in, in your, your upbringing? Was there no. like, no? No. Did you feel loved? No. There was no such word as love. Yeah. There was no such word as love. I'd never seen my father kiss my mother or tell anybody that he loved them in my whole life. You know, never heard that word, love you. No affection, hugs? No, or never. Wow. Never. The only time you would get, I would get recognition is when I'd tell him where there was a safe in a factory that I'd just broken into or a shopping centre that, you know, when I say shopping centres, shopping centres weren't existing. Yeah. I was, I, I broke into Coles in 1966 um, and Coles was the biggest nice. department store in Australia and, and the Coles I broke into was the first GJ Coles of Australia. When we got, we got caught for that, the kids, and, you know, there's a bunch of kids, I had all the street kids working for me, but before that we were stealing lead off roofs. Yeah. I've always, I've always been the type of guy that had to make a quid. Because I was just poor, I was dirt poor. I had to wear my sister's shoes, you know, Dunlop volleys that you know the hand me down runners. They weren't yeah. volleys; they were little white runners. But that was what we were, I was given as hand me downs. And as a little boy, was there much of shame attached to that for you? Yeah, there there was, but at the same time, everybody was poor. Yeah, except for my old man and his mates. Yeah. They all drove brand new cars, tailor made clothes, mm. diamond rings, and you know they all. Live the life, but their the wives and kids didn't. Yeah, 
You know, women women were sort of like the mob, isn't it? It's like you watch The Sopranos, you watch well, some of those mob movies and that sort of thing, and it's not too dissimilar to that. It is the mob. Yeah. You know, it's Australia's version of what we call the mafia. Yeah. You know, we, we, we call the mafia and we see it on TV. When you're in the Panthers and Dockers, it was a family. Mm. You didn't get in there unless you were family. Let's uh, let's go and talk about the the painters and dockers in general. You know, you had to earn your stripes to be in that team, didn't you? You know yes. what I mean? And there was no such – you couldn't tell on it. You couldn't be an informer. Those sorts of things would end up pretty bad for people. The parents and doctors were notorious for cleaning their own mess. Mm. If there was something that happened, people were killed often mm. and consistently. But they had all this incredible story where you didn't go and get the bloke at his home. You never went and shot up someone's house. Mm. You didn't shoot someone's car up. The car can't shoot back. You know, there was none. Of, there was there was actually rules. There was there was a, a code of honour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it only it only stayed for a little while. By the time I became involved with them in a violent level, it's not in seventy one, seventy two. I'd realised it was all bullshit. Mm. It was a lie because they weren't loyal. You know, because I'd I'd set up a bank robbery for one of the painters and doctors, one of the top criminals. And my mate was a bank teller, and they robbed the bank, and then lashed me the money. Yeah. You now my my swear up, my 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 whack. So I realised, but I still didn't believe it. I still believed the lie. I wanted to be, <clears throat> I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be part of. So I did a lot of stuff, of breaking into places, telling me old man where this place was, how I'd got in. Then he'd him and his mates would go there, and they'd get the vaults or the you know these they called them vaults. So I'd just big steel doors, mm. and they'd get in there and they'd cut the doors off and. Empty him out, you know. But that in itself wasn't that, that. Those guys, it's like the early days shoplifters, like the Australian. Remember, the, we had a gang in Australia called the Kangaroos. They were an international gang of shoplifters. A lot of them were painters and dockers, weren't they? I grew up with them. Yeah, Rhino Calligan, the Fibber, and they um, they went overseas. This gang, can you just explain what the Kangaroos were? The Kangaroo gang was a mob of guys that went to well, they went to Europe and they went to London. They were shoplifters, and they were good shoplifters. They were shoplifting like. The best jewelry stores in London, you know, they were just playing everybody off the break. Plus, they were also really good at breaking enters. You know, there's a whole bunch of those guys that um, and they come from like from Sydney, from Melbourne, Melbourne and, and Sydney, all, yeah. And they all joined forces and went to Europe. And there's books written on them that they'll tell the story better than I'll tell them because I was a child. But Brian O'Kelligan grew up as like good Irish, like name. my brother. And um, I had an air rifle, and Brian said to me, "Come for a walk." And we walked up the Smith Street, Collingwood, and. We went to this little sports store and Brian said to the bloke, mate, what's those things over there? And when the bloke turned around to get something for me, Brian put his hand over the counter and stole two boxes of air rifle pellets and handed them to me. <laughs> yeah, that was my introduction. To, that's shoplifting. Yeah. You know? But the bloke didn't have a clue. Brian's like, mate, can you get me those two things over? And as he'd bent over, he just put his hand on the counter, grabbed them and just ha- handed them to me and said, get outside. The legendary story. When I was in prison, I used to hear these, they were like romanticised stories of the kangaroos where they went in and stole some $500,000 diamond or yep. something like that, unstealable, all bolted down, and, and they just done these feats of fucking artistry. You know, they even climbed into planes, planes that were transporting money to go to the mint to be burnt. Mm. You know, they'd climb into planes and, you know, unload the planes, you know, and steal the money out of the planes. They were, yeah. they were very connected. They were educated crooks. They weren't mm. sort of bums. They weren't. Those days there was no drugs either, remember. Yeah. You know, drugs were frowned upon. Mm. That's when... I had the, the misfortune of um, becoming a drug addict in 1974. Mm. I was, by that time, I'd, I'd got out of jail and I'd gone to Sydney and I'd, I was on heroin. So I'd lost all this weight. Mm. 
and they've like, "What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you?" And I said, oh, "I've got, <laughs> I've got stomach cancer. <laughs> I had to make something up because I was a boxer. Because that could have got you killed, couldn't it? Yeah, one hundred percent. Oh, you, you were a liability. You were out. You weren't going to be working with the gangs. Mm. You know, because they their attitude is all junkies were, were scum. Yeah, you know, junkies couldn't be trusted. They'll give you up. Yeah. The sad part is, it's embarrassing. But it's a true story. They put on a barrel. What what happens in the panels and dockers? If you got arrested, they'd put on what we call a barrel, which eighteen eighteen gallon keg of beer on the Sunday, and then all the panels and dockers would come down and they'd donate money to your family yeah. or to your to your legal fees. So, unbeknownst to me, they'd put on a barrel, and on the Monday, I'd gone down the union rooms and they'd give me you know whatever it was twenty six hundred dollars, just a lot of money. Said, "Yeah, mate, this is go towards you and your medical treatment." <laughs> <laughs> and I was oh, beauty. I can go and buy two ounces of heroin with that because heroin those days were a thousand dollars an ounce. You know, I was like, "Yeah, beauty, thanks for that." Yeah. But you know, that sort of came undone pretty quickly. I remember a story. I was at Goulburn, Maximum Security Goulburn in nineteen eighty eight. There was an old bloke there with emphysema. He was an old Melbourne. He was an old panel and doctor, and he showed me some um, uh, paper clippings. And he said, "Oh," and the paper clipping was about. Two blokes getting knocked on the docks down there. There's 56 people there at the, at the and not not one person sort of thing. Exactly. That, that was, exactly. was that. That was the esteem that the painter and dockers were held in. Yeah, that was exactly what it would happen. You know, like that's what I realised. My life became a lie. Yeah. Because I lived by this code of ethics. You know that you shoot people, you do this, you don't tell anyone, you do. This. You know, and these guys were just not doing, not playing by the same rules. So I was actually playing. With a stacked deck, you know, yeah. the cards were the cards You're the only one playing the game. And I, I later come to f- find that out often later in life, even all these, this code that we've got to live by and I can only a few play the game. Yeah, there's not many that play the game, you know. like There has been a few, a very few, but the ones that, that, that notarised and big noted themselves the most mm. were the ones I found out were the, the, the shit kickers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the quietest one, and, and there's a guy called Jimmy Constantine. He's, he, he, he killed himself. He... He was blowing a building up for the for the Jewish, you know, doing a Jewish stock take on a building, you know, and um, he'd That's, used... A Jewish stock take <laughs> is in reference to an insurance, insurance job. job yeah. yeah. And Jimmy blowing the place up and he had his wife and kid, his kid was only four years of age at the time, sitting down the road while Jimmy went in. He put, used nitropil, which is a fertiliser that he'd never used before. And you mix it with diesel and you put jelly night with it. It's an explosive. And Crash Jimmy, course is an explosive here with yeah. Ron Isherwood. Yeah. Explosives 101. Yeah, I actually went to Better Monkey Course in 73 yeah. for different reasons, of course. And Jimmy was running down the, the road after he'd set the explosives and the wall fell down in front of his wife and kid and what, they seen the wall fall on him and kill him. Wow. That Jimmy Constantine is one of the few people that I'd say was a good guy. Mm. You know, he was, a, he, was a, he was my hero as a kid. You know, he looked after me as a kid. He gave me rifles. He gave all the rifles he gave me had silencers on them. I don't understand what that was about. He must have wanted to scare the rabbits, but you know. But that's you know that's where I grew up. You know, and as I said, when I got involved with um, the Pains and Dockers as as a young young still as a kid, I only seventeen years of age, and Longley and Baisley was there, and Baisley went on to kill Isabel Wilson and that Donald McKay murder. And oh, that was him, was it? Oh, that Baisley. That was the the Grafton stuff with yes, the mafia mate, stuff. The mafia like, stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, well, I'd introduced him to the guy that got arrested with a guy called George Joseph. He owned Melbourne Firearms, and mm. George was like my uh, adopted stepfather. He took me in, mm. George, and he, he knew that I came from a really bad family. He knew that I was I was I was, I was pretty broken. Mm. You know, I was my, my old man was a psychopath. Mm. You know, a complete psychopath. 
And George took me and he taught me how to shoot. He taught me how to make guns. He taught me how to just talk. Just him and his wife couldn't have children, so they took me in and they loved me. Mm. They used to take me out to their farm on Saturdays and we'd shoot. How did that feel from a kid that didn't receive love at home? How did you respond to that? I loved it. Yeah. I loved him. I, 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 was, I looked forward to going up after school straight to his gun shop mm. and washing the grease out of the guns because all guns used to come to Australia packed in grease because, mm. as we said, we didn't have containers, so they had to be yeah, kept from the, the salt. Rust, yeah. Stop the rust. And my job was to clean the guns out with petrol and diesel and clean them all out and get all the guns going. And my reward, reward was that I could fire the guns. Mm. So that was my reward, you know. So, But was that the first semblance that you ever had of a real home? First semblance of what I called normal relationship between a man and a woman. Yeah, wow. Where I actually seen him showing love and affection mm. and putting his arm around me. I was really uncomfortable when he was putting his arm around me. I thought, well, maybe he's got some bad intentions, this guy, you know what I mean? Because yeah. where I came from, you know, a man didn't cuddle a man. A man didn't tell a man he loved himself, you know. And, um, and I'd always had that fear of, you know, the pedophilia sort of stuff, you know, because... Um, you know, things happened in my life, not directly to me, that happened to my family that made me a little bit wary of sexual predators and things like that. Yeah. And I remember a guy picked us up from the, the the pool one day, not the pool, down the beach one day, down St Kilda Beach, and he'd give us a lift home and one of my mates said to me, oh, he tried to touch me. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, don't be stupid, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, it ended up, the old man knew him from the jail, the bloke, and I said to the old man, do you know, because he said to me, I know your dad. I said, you know, in there, I mean, he was like, yeah, he's an old grub, you know. But there's no, there's no, but I always had that fear. I've always yeah. had that horrible fear of, of um, pedophilia. I've, I've got a really bad grudge with it, I've, yeah. it, which caused me later on in life to, to do th- things to other people in prisons, yeah. which I'm not proud of, but I'm not ashamed of. Oh, it shouldn't be. You know, I did things, you know, while I was in prison. If I knew someone was in for child abuse, I would go out of my way to try to make them. Never be able to touch a kid again. Yeah. Let's talk about the drug drug use. How did that come about when you started using heroin in particular? That's like it's a, it's a big step up. My old man hates tattoos and he hates drugs. Mm. I've got a full body suit (laughs) and I was a heroin addict. So I was rebelling against my dad. I hated my father, even though I loved him because it's such a contradiction. I heard stories from other blokes. At this stage, I didn't know you, and I was in jail, and, they'll, and, they'll t- and everyone used to talk, a lot of people used to talk about you in a legendary status, because, and they were talking about how you'd been tattooed all around the world, in different mm. places around the world, on your travels. Yeah. Is yeah. that the case? Yeah, I did it on purpose. Yeah. I collected artists. <laughs> I went and collected artists. You know, I didn't want to get tattooed to be a tough guy. I, I, I'm, I'm very... Pedantic in yeah. everything I do. Everything's got to be right, and I've got to do everything perfect, and I've got to do it. And I knew I wanted a bodysuit yeah. for my whole life because you know you're in the nick. All the blokes have the, the jail jail shit. suit on them. It was yeah. all shit. Yeah. And I, was, I wanted the bodysuit. Was that a representation of anything, Ron? Because we, I like, I, I know some of your stuff is like um, the Japanese. What's that called? Yeah, yakuza. Yeah. Was it? It is in some ways. It's a fuck you. Mm. It's a fuck you to the system. Plus, every tattoo I've got's got a meaning. Mm. You know, I'm not a religious person, yet I've got Jesus and all stuff on my arms for my mum. Mm. You know, one of my first tattoo ever was on my arm, says in memory of mother when my mum passed away. Yeah. That was my first tattoo, like, yeah. I, got, I had boo shit tattoos, but yeah. my first real tattoo was in memory of mother. Yeah. And then as I travelled the world, you know, I got 
tattoos on, of angels on my backs for my twin daughters who are yeah. 40 years of age now. And so every tattoo had a symbol, but they also had to go to a certain tattooist. Because mm. I picked the guys who, you know, everyone thinks Ed Hardy's a clothes brand. Mm. Ed Hardy's actually a tattooist. famous tattooist yeah, from, yeah. from San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. And you know what I'm like. You can't get to get tattooed by Ed Hardy. I was, you know, it's funny. I look back on my, on my life. Because you've like, got a good life. It's like man. a movie, you know. Yeah. I used to get dressed up in drag to do armed robberies. And I remember <laughs> I remember driving on my way down Parramatta Road. And I'm sitting in the passenger seat having a ciggy, mm. the long red wig on, you know, the fishnet stock was on. <laughs> and my mate's driving the car and he said, look at this fucking truck driver. Your truck driver's trying to look under there. <laughs> trying to look up your skirt. Trying to look up my skirt. And he's in the, in the inside lane. I'm in the passenger seat and he's trying to look up my skirt. And I'm on my way to do an armed robbery, you know. And I've opened my legs like that. But, you know, but I, mate, life was a game. Yeah. Crime was a game. Crime wasn't, I, I wasn't angry at the world. Crime was just what I did. Mm. I was a criminal. I was taught to be a criminal. My father told me, school cannot teach you anything. When I said to him, he said, what do you want to be? I said, I want to be a lawyer. This is a true story. Mm. I wanted to be a lawyer because Frank Gobell was the biggest lawyer in Victoria. And he was rich. Jack Lazarus was the greatest barrister in, in Victoria. They were rich. You know, those guys were driving Rolls Royces in the 60s. Mm. They had all the money, and I just wanted the money. And the old man said to me, he said, do you want to fight the coppers? Buy a fucking gun. <laughs> that was it. And then fast forward, 1971, I'm involved with a shootout with the police in a, mm. in a siege. Let's just go for a bit of that, Ron. Let's talk about what happened there. Mate, there was myself and three other guys, older, a lot older than me. We broke into a service station and then cut a hole through the wall and climbed into a what we'd call Harvey Norman sort. It wasn't Harvey Norman. It was back in those days. Yep. It was whatever it was, you know, records and TV stores. Yep. And you got to remember, you know, in 1971, TVs were as big as fucking tables. You know, they were giants, you know. So we had a van parked in the service station overnight so it looked like it was going to get repaired. And that way we already had the van there to load it up. So we'd left that there. We broke through. We cut through the wall. You know, it took us all night, you know. People, don't, people think crime's easy. Mm. Crime's hard work. Mm. Crime's oh, hard no, work. I, I, you know? I say that. There's no such... Easy money. Yeah. Like, I don't know what you've been doing, but it was yeah. never easy for me. I've never had easy money. Like, you know, take me, you know, eight, eight to ten hours to cut a hole through a wall to, big enough to be able to carry TVs and stuff through the walls and put them into a truck mm. then to try to get away with it. Well, we nearly got out of the joint and one of the blokes walked outside and it was a fluke. The coppers walked past, drove past, come back on us and... Someone pulled a gun out and started shooting at the coppers, which was fucking ridiculous. It was there, we're, we're doing a break and enter. Yeah. You know what I mean? Next thing we're having a shoot. Next thing we've got a shootout with coppers. And yeah. one of the guys got shot in the mouth with a thirty-eight. went through the front of his teeth and came out the side of his teeth. Lucky he didn't blow his head off. Mm. <clears throat> Myself and another guy got shot with the shotguns. I got all the overspray. The other guy lifted off the ground, completely lifted off the ground. It was like what you, when you see something in the movies where someone gets shot with a yeah, shotgun, they go yeah. flying through the air. Yeah. That's how it happened. It was fucking horrific. Mm. It was horrific. I don't care what anyone says. I was shitting myself, and I couldn't get out because we was on a corner, and the cop was at the front, the side, and the and the, the and the and the and the back, and you couldn't get out. And they all had their cars parked with their lights on, so I couldn't. Every time I'd run to a door, they bang, 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 and we'd stop shooting. No one was shooting. They were still shooting for fifteen minutes after we'd stopped. Then they were scared to come in because I went and hid. I went and climbed into a fucking, like up into the roof. I hid, hid in a big box. Mm. I just laid there and it's going to sound really funny. I fell asleep. That's crazy. I know. I fell were you asleep. on drugs? Were you on drugs? No. no? I'd, I'd, I'd never taken a drug at that stage. Okay. I'd never had a drug in my, I didn't have a drug in my life until I went to jail. Mm. Yeah, I fell. I think the, the, 
it was stress and exhaustion. Yeah. I fell asleep. And it's happened to me before in, in really serious parts of my life. Yeah. That I've actually been to a point where it's that much stress, I'll just shut down and go to sleep, you know. So anyway, I get, we get arrested. Um, they tell me my mate's dead, the one that got shot in the face. They bash us for, you know, you can imagine, because we, we're charged with attempted murder on police. Mm. And one of the other guys that didn't get shot, he went missing straight away. A couple of months before that, we'd been at my father's um, two-up game, and he'd had a game of pool. It's going it's to sound stupid, it's the truth. Had a game of pool with a guy for a dollar. And the guy says, double enough and two dollars, double enough and four dollars. Well, Gary comes back into the room and I said, how'd you go? He goes, yeah, four bucks. And I put it on the two-up, you know, back the pennies. He said, oh, he didn't pay me. I said, what? He said, he didn't pay me. I said, what do you mean he didn't pay you? He said, he told me to piss off. Piss off goose. I said, you can't do that. And this bloke was like my hero. He got out of jail and, you know, I sort of looked up to him. And I said, mate, come on, downstairs, you've got to go and sort this out. You can't cop this. And... um Long story short, they go downstairs. I grab the old man's forty-five from behind the counter, follow him downstairs. They have a bit of a punch up. Gary's getting getting beaten up, so I jump in, give the guy a bit of a slap on the head of the gun, and say, "You know, get out of here, fuck off," you know. And he turns around, and he says, "I know where you live. I'm going to knock you." I'm like, "What?" And he says, "I know where you live. I'm going to knock you." So, yeah, I go upstairs. I tell the old man, he goes, "In the car, let's go." The shotgun's in the boot. You gotta, you gotta kill this gun. I'm like, fuck. You know, I'm 17. I'm not, I was 16 at that time. So I was 16. He said, come on, let's go. Blah, blah, blah. The guy gets shot down the road in the legs, doing circles looking for him. You know, it's at three o'clock in the morning in the middle of Paran. It's fucking not a car in sight. You know, bang. You imagine a 12 gate shotgun going yeah. off in the middle of town. You know, it's like, whoa. And we take off. We make sure there's no coppers. We come in. We're looking for the body. We're looking for the guy. And the old man's going, you sure you got him? Yeah, 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 fuck it. And I said, no, I said to myself, I shot him in the legs. He goes, you what? You don't shoot fucking dead men, don't fucking shoot back. You don't shoot people in the legs, you know. And I'm a kid. I'm thinking, it was fucking $4. You know, it was, it was a principle of $4. I understand that. And I understand making a mess of him, but not. Well, when we got pinched for the shit of the coppers, my good mate Gary also gave me up on that. Yeah. So next thing I've been bashing and pinched for attempted murder on the police. Next thing I get the Paran coppers turn up and go, oh, guess what? But I was so badly bashed by the coppers that the Paran coppers wouldn't take me into custody. They said, no, we're not taking you in case he dies. Mm. They said, we'll get him. They came out the come out to Pantries and got me a couple of weeks later and took me in and charged and put me in a lineup. They pointed me out and they charged me. And um, I got found not guilty of that. Mm. I got pointed out by both of the blokes for the shooting. And um, when we went to the committal, it was quite funny. Apparently someone had had a chat to him. And yeah, they, an amnesia. <laughs> they got amnesia and the magistrate, you know, because, you know, the painters and dockers were so powerful, we knew who was going to be on the jury. If you, if you were going up to court next month on the 3rd of March, you had a court date, we'd have the jury list. Of, we'd, that, that jury list would go to the rooms and they'd go like, does anyone know any of these people on this, on this list? Are they all right? Are they sweet? Can we get to them? Can we pay them? So we had a jury member. Yeah, they were fucking, it was incredible. Mate, I used to get bail three o'clock in the morning, you know, one of the, the Masonic Club. Is mm. that the Masonic Club, that special club that's. Yeah, the yeah, Masons, yeah. The Masons, that's yeah. it, the Masons. They were on, they were sweet. They'd turn up because those days the coppers would refuse your bail, then you'd get a JP, and the, some of the Masons were yeah. JPs. They'd come in and overrule the sergeant. <laughs> so no, he's got bail. 
And yeah. they just get you out on bail, you know. And that carried on that carried on for most of my life. Even when I was a junkie and even when Let's I, forward, let's talk about that. What so you ended up in jail. How did you become a junkie in jail? They they put me on a thing a drug called uh Ligactral. Yeah, it's a psych drug, yeah. It's a psych drug. I'd come out of Pentridge, and I, the judge ended up, when we, I got found not guilty of attempted murders, and I went to a youth training centre, the judge said, he's too young to be in Pentridge, he should never have been in there. And he sentenced me to 13 months in a youth training centre. And as soon as I got to the youth training centre, Graham Jensen was my cousin. He's a, a very famous armed robber who got yeah, killed by the police. got killed by the police. Yeah. And then they, after they killed Graham, they backed up with the Wall Street and killed yeah. all the coppers. Yeah. Um, killed those two young uniform coppers there, and that was so. That that that, that was just that in itself was a chain of events, wasn't it? Where yeah. it was tit for tat. It was a tit for tat. Graham, Graham, and I were in. Um, we'd grown up together all our lives. We used to call each other cousins. We're yeah. not really cousins, but we called each other cousins. He sent a message down to me. Oh, this bloke's a dog. You know the old message you get through the system. Yeah. yeah. This bloke was a big bastard. About six foot two. You know. So I kinged him, and we punched on, and I get locked up straight away, and you know. So I'm, I've just got to the. To the youth training centre. I'm already punching on with some guys twice my size. The system, in its, in its wisdom, said this guy's a psychopath. We just got to have to medicate, medicate him mm. because they put me into a padded cell. Because it's a heavy duty drug that Ligactyl. Yeah, it's a heavy duty to sedate people, to um, stop people from acting violently. From t- to get uh, what what I'd seen of Ligactyl, my experience. I've I've been on it too. It's just to get you to stop you from moving. Yeah, liquid lobotomy, I used to call it. Yeah, stop you from thinking. So they put me on that. I went through the system. I'd been on it for a few months, and <clears throat> excuse me, I'd walk, walked it back to. Oh, they'd moved me out of the out of the youth training centre into a better section, and um, there was a guy there. He said to me, "What what what, what, what drugs are you on?" The junkie, mm. the junkie. Yeah, you always yeah. find the junkie. That one. Yeah, and I hey, said, "Any I, good?" I don't know, mate. <laughs> and he said to me, "You're you're trashed every time you take this. You're trashed." He said, "Don't swallow it tomorrow. Bring it back and show me what it is." And I still remember, mate. It was just a white. Sugar capsule tab- tablet, and he was. He said, "Ah, oh, that's the grouse. You can shoot that up." That was my first injectable drug. Yeah, he shot me up. I fell on my knees. I vomited, and the next night I couldn't wait to get back there. The reason was I called it remission. Yeah, a day out remission. remission. When you're in jail, you know drugs are often referred to as remission, as jo- as Ron just said. Or I'm just going to have a day out, and you'll have some um, some medication that's just going to take the edge off you and, and slap you up a bit. Yeah, and you know I found what it did for me drugs. What drugs did for me is they stopped the chatter, they stopped the stuff in my head because I was one of these guys that lived in his head. I was quite willing in in the, in the criminal term what you call willing. You know, mm. I could do an arm robbery on my own, or I could shoot, I could do all that stuff. But I couldn't walk down the street at night without being afraid. Yeah, I get it. You know what I mean? Scared of the dark. I went for all of that. Like, yeah. you know, I could, I'd walk down the middle of the street with my hands armed up, ready to punch on with anything, with nothing. Yeah. And if I had to I go re- home. I so relate to that, Ron. Yeah. I was terrified to go home because I didn't know, you know, I'd be making excuses because, you know, I'm in trouble with my dad. Mm. And I'd get home and there'd be no trouble. But all the way home, I'd just go through this incredible panic, mm. this insane fear of, oh, what's going to happen, you know? And I had that my whole life. And drugs put that to sleep. It just stopped the sh- it stopped the fear. Yeah, that fear, that unknown fear that I, I felt like I was a fraud and I was always going to be caught out. I th- Imposter syndrome it's classed as these yeah. days, isn't it? See, I was I was taught you weren't allowed to be afraid, and to me, being afraid was a weakness. And being a weakness made me vulnerable to other people. And because I'd come from such a violent upbringing, you know, because I've watched people, you know from the time I was four years of age, 
getting stitched up at my mother's house, getting bullets trying to get dug out of people and, mm. you know, people getting their heads caved in with house bricks and just, that was normal. That was, mm. that wasn't unnormal for me. That wasn't, like, normal for me would be someone to just say, hi, mm. how you going, mate? Treat you nice. Yeah, treat you nice. That, that would be. And you become suspicious of people who do treat you nice. Yeah, I just didn't want anybody to come near me anywhere, anywhere near me, you know. And I, you know I say this, and I, and I say it. As, like as a backhanded slide, but it's the truth. If you made me feel good, I wanted to have sex with you. You made me feel bad, I wanted to kill you. Yeah. It was that simple. Yeah. It was really that simple. You make me feel good? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. You make me feel bad? You're gone. Yeah. You know? And I became so afraid of everything that I just became insanely violent. You know, I grew, I grew up with that Dennis Allen. You know, like he was a doctor death. Dr. Death, yeah. yeah. That era was normal. That yeah. was, it was something. It was something in the water. That era. Yeah, it really was. There was something in the water. That era. There's some people that you know. Chopper and I were in in, in Pentries together Chopper in 1971. You're referring, you're referring yeah. to Chopper Reed, yeah. Yeah, we were together in Pentries in 1971. We we're both kids. Mm. We're the same age. I think he's a little bit older than me, or a couple of months older than me. And he was just a big bully. Those long before Chopper ever became Chopper. It was just the first time he'd been in jail, sort of thing. Mm. Graham Jensen, Chopper Reed. You know, I can just run through a whole name of people who are all. Insanely violent, violent yeah. and um, hated the law. Yeah. The hatred for the police was fucking phenomenal. The hatred was just this incredible hatred. And you know what? We'd we'd walk down the street and throw rocks at cops' cars. Mm. I remember cops used to be on push bikes. You know, I'm 68 mm. years of age. Cops would be on push bikes, and we'd steal old FJ Holdens. And you drive past me, you just smash the passenger door open and knock them off their push bike and just keep driving. Mm. Now that was that was fun. Yeah. You know? Poor you know, some copper walking down the street and someone where, king hit him. But where did where do you think that come from? My father. <laughs> yeah. My dad used to say to me, Did you do that? If you you know you're in trouble? And you go, No You say, Are you lying to me? You say, You only lie to two people in this world, coppers and cunts, which one am I? Mm. That was what I was brought up with. Yeah. You only lie to two people in this world, coppers and cunts, which one am I? Yeah. Because if you lied to him, you were either, you were either putting him on the copper or you put him on the cunt, mm. then he'd just flog you. Yeah. You know, and when my dad flogged you, he didn't give you a smack on the backside. He kicked your head in. Mm. You know, he, he, never, he never beat you without you bleeding. You had to bleed. You had to be laying on the floor, semi-unconscious, yeah. bleeding. And I'm talking that was me, my mother, didn't matter. And I'm talking about when I'm 12 years of age, being yeah. beaten by ex-Australian... Light heavyweight champion. Tough guy. But he's just insane. Yeah. You know, I had friends come over from school and have an argument with him. This is a true story. I'm having a shower and I hear this, ah, bang, bang, bang. And I run up I run up the um, the passageway and there's one of my friends there on the floor with his head cut open. You know what I mean? He says, get him, get him, drag him off the floor, get him, he's fucking bleeding. All the, t- take him out the front and jump on his head, this dog. I said, what, what's, what's, what's going on? Did he just told me his brother's car is faster than mine. <laughs> he just hit him on the head with a chair. He tried to shoot me. This is the same era. This is exactly the same time. This is just before Longley and Baisley came to live at our house. My old man and I had just driven home and we'd had our, our, our relationship had soured. And he was talking something to me about something and I just sort of, you know, by that time I think I'm a gangster. You know, I'm 14 years of age, 15 years of age, you know. No, it's a lie. I'm 16 or something. Anyway... We pull in the driveway. I'll never forget this as long as I live. And he said something to me, and I said, oh, it didn't happen like that. And I got out of the car, and I slammed the door. And he yelled out, don't slam the fucking door. I said, I didn't slam the fucking door. And he jumped out of the car and fired two shots at me. I'm his 16-year-old son. Yeah. 
Fired two shots at me at the front of the house. Mm. Well, I've jumped the fence and I fucking took off. I didn't come home for weeks. He forty-five pulled a forty-five out and fired two shots at me. Crazy for slamming his door. Let's fast forward to heroin addiction. Let's see how did that all come into play. In nineteen seventy-four, I had a car crash. Twenty-fifth of March, nineteen seventy-four, I had a car crash. In Burwood. I was smoking a lot of pot. Burwood, Victoria? Or in Sydney. Sydney. Yeah. I'd the, I'd, I got parole from Victoria to New South Wales in 1974, 1973, the 25th. Well, for a fresh start or? Yeah, my dad had moved up here. My dad and mum had moved up here. Plus the parole board, because we'd got found not guilty of shooting police, the parole board thought it was a good idea that I move up hmm. out of the state. And the yeah. police thought it was a good idea that I'd move up out of the state, you yeah. know, because their attitude was, well, you don't shoot police, you know. Hmm. If you shoot at police, you're going to get knocked. Yeah, yeah. In Victoria those days, they killed people. Until the 90s, yeah. Yeah, they still do. So I get up to Sydney. I have this car crash. With a, we're, smoking, we're selling a lot of pot. Those days, we're selling a lot of pot, you know. And um, I was still in the painters and dockers, but not really. I was, mm. I was a thief. I was still stealing every day with some of the old painters and dockers and mm. we're doing breaking enders and things like that. I'd had the crash. We had a crash. Uh, smoked, smoked some hash. We had this bad crash. And they'd let me out of hospital. I had a broken jaw and a broken leg. I didn't know about addiction. I just didn't know. And I was selling pot and was at a house and a guy turned. I was, I was the man. I was the hot. I was selling hash and pot and I was the man. And this guy walked in and everybody in the house got up and left the lounge room. We were listening to music, Pink Floyd, and went to the kitchen. I'm like, what the hell is going on there? And there was a young girl there, one of my weaknesses. And she said to me, oh, he's got, some, he's got some hammer. I'm like, what? He's got some smack. Mm. I said, what? She goes, have you tried it? She goes, you shoot it up. And because I'd shot up the leg act, well, I said, oh, yeah, I've tried it. Mm. Well, she said, why don't you buy a cap? We'll share it, you know, and then we'll have, have a good time together. So I bought a cap. It was $30 for a capsule of heroin those days. Mm. And you get six or eight shots out of a capsule, yeah. you know, when you're first starting. It was my first shot of smack. It was in 1974. And I loved it. I loved it. The very next day, the guy that I bought that $30 cap off, I, I organised a meeting with him and I said, how much do you pay for your heroin? How much do you sell? How much do you make a week? Who do you work for? And can you get me an ounce? Mm. And he started working for me. And because he was a full-blown junkie, I tried to keep up with him because he was having a shot in the morning, shot at lunchtime, shot in the afternoon. Within t- six weeks, I had a habit. Mm. I didn't know there was such a thing as addiction. I didn't know there was such a thing as a habit. And I t- this, what happened was I woke up this morning, I'd had a shower, and I got really sick and I started vomiting. Let's let's talk about withdraw- heroin withdrawals. Like I always say, picture the worst flu you've ever had and times it by 10, and that'll give you an indication what it feels like. To- My first heroin withdrawal was in 1976. I, had, I didn't withdraw from 74 to 76. I didn't withdraw because that morning I woke up and I, I felt sick. Jimmy came over and he said, I, I thought I had food poisoning from the night before because I was vomiting green bile. Mm. And he started laughing. He said, nah, you're right, mate, just have a shot. Mm. I'm like, what? And I, I swear to God, I, it was like it was yesterday, I thought, I'll never run out of this stuff again. Mm. It felt so bad. Because that fear, like I know from my own heroin use, I lived with fear that I'd run out and have to withdraw. Yeah. So I just kept powering on. Exactly. So I didn't. And what happened to me was I got, I got pinched my life story. I got pinched. I'm back in jail. It was the first time I ever had heaven withdrawals. I was at the MRP. MRP it was back at Long Bay, It yeah. was back in the day. 
Abbo Henry was there. There was you know a lot of guys there, and because I had a pretty good name on the street, and I was pretty willing, and everyone knew me, and I was a boxer, and you know, and, I, and you know, and I was a painter and docker, so everyone sort of respected you, and everyone knew you, you know, and I was a good crook. I could earn. All of a sudden, I'm a junkie, and I remember the first night being in Pentry, in uh, Long Bay at the MRP, and I'm going through withdrawals. I'd never felt anything like it. I'd wore the skin off my knees, my elbows, and my shoulders from rolling around on those old canvas sheets. Yeah. From rolling around and around and vomiting and vomiting and vomiting. And I was banging up. And I remember the screw come up and then brought the nurse up. And she said, what's wrong? I said, oh, I'm on heroin. Then they said, ah, oh, you fucking junkie, just yeah. die. Yeah. And stop banging up. Well, then I thought, well, I'll bang up until they come and bash me. Because at least if they bash me, it'll make me unconscious. Mm. And there was a couple of guys that were good guys. I'm not going to say their names. One was in pinched on a murder blue. You think he had a lot more worry about than me. He came up and got me out of the cells, and the other guy's Bobby Stolter. Bobby's dead. They came up and got me out of the cell, carried me downstairs and put me in the yard, took me to the shower and washed me, got me clothes and took me back up to the cell. They did that every day for fucking five days. They come and got me because I couldn't even walk. I was that sick. That was my first heroin withdrawal, and it was horrific. And I said, I'll never use heroin again. That's shit. Mm. That's fucking horrible. Within 24 hours of being released, I was stoned. I'd started that cycle of heroin addiction. Because a big part of your big part of your story, Ron, a massive part of your story, is your recovery. Yeah, and you're well known in in you know in prisons, um, in the criminal world for your recovery. If someone's suffering from some sort of addiction, you're the go-to guy. A lot of people say, "Give Ron Isherwood a call." Let's talk about your recovery journey. Where did that start? 1977, I escaped from jail. I escaped and, um, you know, so I came back to jail. Warren Le French was a mate of mine. He'd just been killed. It was 1981, actually. He'd just been killed. Um, I was scoring off Warren. He'd just been killed. And I was like, I, I've got to stop. You know, this is crazy. And that rot- filthy Roger Rogerson was looking for me. Because mm. if he's looking for you, you know he's going to kill you. He's going to kill you. So what happened was I got pinched again. While I was in there, Warren got killed. French and I were mates. We were mates. Mm. We, we trained together. We grew up together. Warren Lamb French, is, it's well known that Roger Rogerson killed Warren Lamb French in Dengar Place in Annandale, isn't it? Murdered him in Dengar yeah. Place, yeah. 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 I had a lot of fear. I'm in, I'm in jail. In 1977, when I, when I was escaped, a mate of mine that was in the house with me when I was an escapee, and I'd got on a drug called Ritalin. I don't know if you've ever used it. It's a psych, it's like, yeah. it's like speed. Yeah. And um, I'd gone into psychosis, and I thought the house was surrounded, and I said to my mate, he was a plumber, he had his bag with him. I said, cut a hole in the floor and I'm going to escape out under the house yeah. in the terrace house in King's Cross. Well, he cut the hole in the floor, Mark, and he kept on going himself. He took it, done a runner, got yeah. away from me. Yeah, you were well, driving him mad. <laughs> oh, mate, he was terrified I was going to kill him. Yeah. So he wrote, he wrote a letter to me while I was in jail and said, mate, if you put half the effort into recovery as you do into using, you'll be able to get clean. He was in a rehab. Yeah. It was in 1981. He was smart, mate. He got a couple of shielders to start writing to me. From the rehab. Oh, we've heard a lot about you. We'd love to meet you. And I'm like, oh, I want to go to rehab now. There's girls there. You know, there's girls there that haven't got penises, you know, because where I'd been <laughs> half my life, the girls had penises, you know. And the true story is, mate, a guy came out to 12-step me. That's when someone comes to visit you. Mm. And I thought... And to, when I say 12-step, is to invite you into the Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous program. Exactly. And this guy, he came and visited me. And he started telling me about his story, how he felt, how he thought. 
I thought he was an undercover cop. Mm. I thought, wow, he's good, this guy. Yeah. He's really good, this guy. He, he, he's, he's fucking good. Yeah. I went back to the yard and I said to the boys, anyone in here a junkie? Can mm. you tell me? Because I'm trying to manipulate this bloke. Because I, I wanted to get bail to get away. Yeah. I was going to do a runner. I was going to yeah. get bail and take off. That's what I've always done my whole life. Yeah. If I got bail, I took off, you know. Mm. So cut a long story short, he visited me six weeks in a row. Those days you'd go to Supreme Court every week. And, I went, and he came every week, he came to Supreme Court, and I'd get knocked back. For bail. So you were trying to get bail to a rehab, yeah? To a rehab, yeah. yeah. And in the end, after the six weeks, we got bail to the rehab. And as he waited downstairs, we came out of the, out of the place. It's funny how crazy we are. I had a pair of jail Crosby slippers on. That's what we used to have down there, the Crosby yeah, slippers. Yeah. I had a pair of jeans I'd manipulated off some bloke on remand and a green jail T-shirt. That's all I owned. Nothing else. And I'm walking down the street thinking I'm fucking on fire, thinking I'm kill, kicking goals. But I couldn't run away from this guy. I didn't want to make, make an ass of him because he'd visited me six weeks in a row. And I thought, I'll wait until I get back to the rehab and then I'll, I'll do a runner. And I got back to the rehab, mate, and something happened. And the thing that happened was the therapeutic value of one egg covering another. You know, it really was. It was a miracle happened. No, I'm not a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person. I believe in, in, in goodness. Yeah. And people actually cared, you know. And, the, and one of the bosses, of the, she was a woman, she was a good sort, she said to me, oh, we've been waiting for you to come, you know, notorious Mr. Ronish, you know, just being yeah. sweet and that. And I said, are they all good source like you there? Mm. So um, I went to that rehab, mate, and I stayed there for 10 months and I stayed clean. And I didn't really learn much about recovery. What I learned was the therapeutic value of one addict helping another. And I got a thing called c- compassion and empathy, something I never had my whole life. And how I got that. That's born out of love, so people yeah, give you some love exactly. while you're there. I got love. I had to report to the police station every day and a lady called Anna, I love her, Anna M. And Anna used to, have to drive me into Golden Police Station every day to report. And she, just out of con, she was a staff member. She'd drive me in and she'd buy me a bottle of Coke. And it was like someone just gave me fucking a million dollars. Mm. But she gave me kindness. Mm. And she said to me all the time, she was an old drug dealer. She said, Ronnie, you'll be right, mate. You'll be right. Just hang in there, darling. You'll be okay. Just, and I was crazy. You know, I was violent. You know, anyone that said something to me, I just wanted to hit him on the head with an iron. Mm. It's like, get out of my face, I'll kill you, you know, because mm. I was so conf- confrontational. And, um, yeah, I got that and I met a girl there, of course, I fell in love. You know, Red, in house, the rehab. Ra- Red house romance. Red house romance, yeah. And I've got 40-year-old twin daughters because of that, mm. you know, and they're, they're the most beautiful. And I've got grandkids because of that. You know, mm. my kids are beautiful, my granddaughters are beautiful. And um, my granddaughter and my grandson, he, I just went to his 11th birthday last Saturday in Sydney, my grandson. And, you know, I've got an 18-year-old granddaughter. This is all because I got clean. But this rehab, it, it gave me something that I'd never had. It gave me an introduction to a 12-step program. And all that is was a formula to life. Mm. It's about, let's, let's, let's just do a, a brief summary on it. It's about ownership. It's about owning your shit. Yeah. It's about apologising for the shit you've done to other people. Yeah. It's about spreading the message. Yeah, I believe it's about taking responsibility, being accountable, being productive, and, get, and learning some principles, some principles that, you know, what I believe, I have eight demands I live by. Openness, to stay where I stand and not stand my ground, be open with my thoughts and my feelings, acceptance, to accept the things I can't change, you know, and accept that other people can see me better than, my, than I can see myself. Because a lot of the times we don't know we're running rough, one of our mates go, mate, you're, you're fucking way out of line. Mm. And at first it's like, you, no, I'm not, I'm not all right. And you go, no, you're not all right. And then, you know, to me... The, Open acceptance, reliability and congruence, being reliable with your thoughts and your feelings. Mm. 
You know, and if I say I'm going to be here at nine o'clock, I'm here at nine o'clock. I'm here yeah. at ten to nine. Yeah, I'm not late. Congruence. If I tell you to clean the toilet, believe me, I've cleaned the toilet. Mm. You know, I mean, I really believe in consistency. You start the day at five mile an hour. You finish the day at five mile an hour. Mm. Respect the big one. Respect yourself. You respect yourself by working those other demands, and then you start to get respect. Because mm. I thought you could get respect at the end of a gun. I thought you'd get respect by being a drug dealer. Mm. I thought you'd get respect by being a gangster. That wasn't respect. That was called fear. Mm. And there was always a motivation for, you know. Today I like to think I'm respected for, because people know what I say is the truth. Mm. And if I say I'm going to do something, I'll do it. If I say I'm not going to do it, I won't do it, you know. Mm. And the last one's the big one, honesty. Mm. I don't add bits on to make it sound better, and I don't leave bits off so it doesn't sound as bad, you know. Mm. A lot of times when I talked about my recovery, um, as you know, I went back to jail at 16 years clean. Mm. And that's embarrassing, but it is the truth. Part of your recovery is you went and lived in the States for, what, 20 yeah. years? Yeah, I lived in the States off and on for 20 years. I've got a 27-year-old daughter who's American, half American, half Australian. Yeah. Yeah. And you met some interesting characters along your way in recovery. In, in, uh, in yeah. I was, I was blessed because, I don't know, you know, I, I guess I've got a bit of a personality. I, I'm not really ashamed of who I am. You know, there's parts of me that I wish I didn't do, and there's parts of me that I wish I did, did better. But God damn it, and I always say, if you put that on a scale, I've done a lot more good than I've done bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's how I weigh it up. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to do karmatic, you know, karma and all that mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, so I went to the States to get tattooed. That's why I went to the States, because I wanted to get tattooed by some certain tattooists over there, and I love their cars. I'm, you know, I'm a Corvette freak. Mm-hmm. I started doing NA meetings over there, and, you know, it's, I got invited to New York. This is This is one of the highlights of my whole... Recovery, and I've been around recovery now for 42 years, you know. And um, I got invited by an older woman who was in AA. She said, would you come and be a guest speaker at the New York Mental Institution for the Criminally Insane? And I'm like, what? She goes, Ron, I think you'd have a really good story. I was only about three three years clean this time. You know, I'm 37 years clean in a couple of weeks. So it's 34 years ago. And she said, I'd really like you to come and be a guest speaker at the institution and we get to this place in new york mate it's fucking huge this wall and try to big thing up mental asylum in the rock across the top of it and it's got these giant gates it's like the prison gates mm. and you walk through it and you see on tvs you see guards you know seven foot tall guards 300 pound 400 pound they're there and you walk in and they're like g'day sir you know and i'm like fucking hell where am i you come through this gate, you go through that gate, we go through all these gates, you know, and I'm, I'm shitting myself. I'm thinking, fucking hell, mate, I don't know what I've got myself in for here. I don't know if I've bitten off more than I can chew. So we get to this room and there's about 15 guys in there, all sitting there, and guards all around the outside. So I'm talking guards everywhere. And there's me and this lady, she's lovely. And she's been clean about 10 years, and I'm clean probably two, three years. And anyway, I told my story. And they were clapping and crying. And after I finished my story, they were cuddling me, saying, oh, brother, thank you. Thank you so much for coming in here. It was one of the most exhilarating, humbling experiences I've ever had in my life because I I felt for once what it was like to judge somebody else Mm. because I judged them before I fucking knew who they were. Then I'd realised that's what I'd been doing my whole life. I'd been uneducated and I'd been ignorant. And ignorance and... Arrogance together, a really horrible mix. Yeah. And I found humility that day, humility that I felt was a real heartfelt humility of the therapeutic value of one headache, hope, and another, which would given to me 
1981. It was just brilliant, mate. And then I started getting lots of meetings over there and I met up with the, the fun of meeting Charlie Sheen in active addiction and watching the disease, you know. And he'd say to me, what are you going to do, take me one of them fucking AA meetings, motherfucker? Mm. And I'd say, it wouldn't hurt you. Have a look at you. you say, man, I'm a multi-millionaire. I said, you got nothing, you know. And it was really funny. Just one night, we were at my mate, my mate owns a tattoo studio in Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. And, you know, we became friends because of me tattoos. You know, he'd get tattooed, and I got to know all the best tattooists in the world. And I became quite famous in the tattoo industry of going around the world doing competitions and winning competitions all around the world. And anyway, Greg James, he tattooed everybody. You know, he tattooed fucking um, David Carradine, Roseanne. Um, the Motley Crue, we actually went on tour of the Motley Crue, tattooed them, he's tattooed Ozzy Osbourne, he's tattooed, you know, everybody who's everybody's been tattooed by Greg. Well, next thing, Charlie turns up, you know, and he's like, ah, I want you to shut the shop at 12 o'clock and kick everybody out and I'm going to be here, you know. And he got a tattoo that was about, you know, an hour tattoo, took nine hours because he was so fucking out of control, bouncing all around the room, drinking pills. and, and just, But, mate, what a funny guy, a really yeah. nice guy. And then he got clean for a while and he sent me a message that was the most – most boring 12 months of my life. <laughs> then, he, then he went on that bender, mm. you know, and we all know how that's ended up. You know, the poor guy's got some issues now. Robert Danny Jr., I've seen him at a I remember meeting. when you told me this story. What did he say? They, they asked him to share, and what did he say? He said, I'm just flat out breathing today. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be just happy to breathe today, thank you. Yeah, because he was there detoxing off yeah. heroin. This is before he <clears throat> went to jail. It was before he got famous, you know, near that guy's clean, you know. I think at Danny Trigiero. Yeah. Know, and Danny, you know, that machete... Um, everything, he, every time he, he shares about it, he says all the time, everything I have in my life is a direct result of me giving something away. Mm. Everything Powerful I have today, message. carrying message. the message, helping people. Yeah. Everything, even his job as a movie star, he was training a bloke that he met in the Nick. Because Danny was the real deal. He was a, he was a proper gangster. Yeah. You know, he was a proper... He was in the movie Heat. That's yeah. That's one of my yeah. Yeah, Machete. He's me. Dustle Dawn. Yeah, he's fifty years clean. Yeah, Only fifty years clean, something wow. like that. You know, and and a, and a good human being, and he helps a lot of people. A lot of the yeah. guys from the prisons go go to go to go to me's because of Danny. Yeah. You were what twenty odd years clean when you got arrested? Sixteen years clean. Sixteen years clean, yeah. and and you got arrested for importation. Got arrested for my part in a, in a botched attempt to import 18 kilos of cocaine into Australia. Mm. I'm not a victim. I, I, I apologise that I got caught. If I hadn't got caught, would I have been apologising? Probably not. You know? This here was pretty well publicised when it happened too. You copped a lot in the media. You lost a lot, you know what mm. I mean? You lost a, a, you know, you were pretty comfortable at that stage. Yeah. You lost everything, didn't you? Yeah, I was, a, I was wealthy. I was, uh, I was 16 years clean. I'd been around recovery for 21 years. Um, married to a beautiful American woman, had a beautiful six-year-old child, was living in a waterfront mansion, <clears throat> had a super successful um, jewellery company, which I still own today, and I had a, and I was doing property development. And I had a friend approach me and tell me, brother, help me. And I, I remember it like it was yesterday. Mm. You know, and I, I looked at him and I said, mate, I don't need to do this. He said, mate, I've fucked up. I've lost a whole bunch of gear overseas. And, you know, he'd, he'd lost 30 kilos of cocaine in, in Argentina, and he said, oh, I need help, brother, you know. If you come and say, because, you know, I'm not a saint. You no, know, I knew the people. If you come and give your word that I'll, I'll make good, they'll give me more. And I did. I went to Brazil, and I made, and I said to them, yeah, give it to him, you know, fix him up. He'll fix it. He'll fix it. 
and he owed me a hundred grand, so I was motivated to, mm. you know, I'd lend him money. So there was a financial motivation. Don't mm. worry about that. And uh, cut a long story short, uh, we got arrested. We got arrested in um, two thousand and two. We got arrested, and um, I got sentenced to eighteen years imprisonment at sixteen years clean. I got arrested in Byron Bay, and there was an old mate of mine called Kenny Dooley. I shouldn't know Ken. Yeah. Ken's a good mate of mine. You know, an old heroin I, importer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I get to I get to graft because I get arrested in Byron. Byron Bay Police Station won't take me because I'm a painter in Docker and the cartel might break me out because Byron's as big as a fucking phone box. Yeah. So they take me to Lismore. Lismore sends me to graft and I turn up at graft and Ken's working in the reception. Hello, mate, on you, you're coming. You know, it's all over the news on you, you're, you're going to be here. This is your bed pack. He gives me my bed pack. This is my bed pack because I'm with my Coey. So I get my bed pack and I go to the cell. I undo my bed pack. There's some cigarettes there and there's two joints. Kenny hasn't seen me for years. He doesn't know I'm clean. So I'm 16 years clean and I'm sitting grafting, pinched for a major conspiracy to import cocaine to Australia. I open up and there's two joints sitting there. And I looked at it and I thought, I'm 16 years clean. And I thought, fuck, you know, I can handle a joint right now. You know, fucking, my life's just turned to shit. And I had my cellmate's with me, and he's, 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 he's not in recovery. He's like, fuck yeah, mm. <laughs> we're kicking here, let's get stoned, you know, we'll, we'll party in here anyway. And I sat, I did, I sat there for a minute, and I thought about it, and I thought, if I smoke these joints tonight, I will never get out of prison. I will kill someone in prison, because the way I use drugs is I use full-on. I will. I had money. I didn't, I hadn't, I hadn't gone for confiscated at that time, Um I would import. I would get drugs brought into the prison system. I would start selling drugs in jail, and I would people wouldn't pay me, and I'd kill somebody, or somebody would kill me. And you know, it was never going to end. And I said to my my cellmate, "Get up on the top window because you know they've got no glass. Get up, and the, get up on the cells, and you smoke the joints yourself." Yeah, because you didn't want to inhale the smoke. I didn't want to inhale the smoke. So you get up there and you smoke it. Mm. He got up there and he smoked these two joints. And that day I made that decision, I believe my life changed, completely changed. Mm. I made a decision that night that. No matter what, I'm not going to pick up a drug. No matter what, I'm going to lose because I knew that I was going to get a big lag. And if I got feeling good, I knew I was going to. And they made an example out of me. They gave me 18 years for 18 kilos. Plus, mm. get fucking 12 years for fucking 100 kilos. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it was a, it was a square up. It was a big square up. They arrested me in New South Wales and took me back to Queensland because yeah. the evidence they used would never have got in in a New South Wales courts. Mm. It cost me six hundred thousand dollars in legal fees. The old guy that sits in court with you, you know, the old clerk that sits in the courts with you all day, when the jury went out, he looked at me and he said, you will not get found guilty, this young fella. And I had five co-accused. One co-accused already pleaded guilty earlier on. But I had five co-accused with me. The first one got up, not guilty. Second one got up, not guilty. Third one got up, not guilty. Fourth one got up, not guilty. Mr. Isherwood, guilty. My ass just fucking... You know when you hear people say, my legs collapsed? Yeah. My legs went... For- I fucking did. Yeah. I thought it was just a saying. My legs dropped. I was like, whoa. And my girl, my wife at the time, she started screaming. I said, stop. Don't show any fucking emotion. And I went, that's a bit fucking tough. You know, I said to the judge, I went, that's a bit fucking tough. And it's actually transcripted. Mm. If you go into my, you Google me, that'll come up. And mm. I said to the judge, I went, that's a bit fucking tough. 18 years, you know, you're having a go. You know, because he was, he was mm. having a go. So cut a long story short, mate, I did the, I, I went to jail, got taken back to Queensland, I um, got found guilty. I went to the prison system and I made a decision that the only way I can stay clean is to carry the message. And you've done it well, let me tell you. 
You know, Ron is renowned in prison for carrying the message. A lot of people are, are, are so lucky to encounter Ron in jail because the people that Ron assisted in jail to get clean, a lot of them are clean today. And, and he was sort of like, you know, this is from from what I, I know, he was sort of like the Pied Piper of recovery. Everywhere he went, every unit he went, every jail he went, a whole heap of people got clean for him carrying his message. And I, I don't know, I think, you know, and, and for you to have the, the pedigree to sort of be able to say, you know, this is where I've come from. And I think that was then blokes were sort of saying, fuck, I've done nothing compared to this guy and he got clean. And I think, just let's talk about that. Let's talk about you going from jail to jail and, and even getting set up in a, a specialised drug treatment unit yeah. that you ran yourself. You know, like that's the highest order, man. Yeah. My co-accused was put into a different jail, of course, the guy that pleaded guilty originally, mm. the guy that came to me and asked me to help him because <clears throat> they said that, he would come to some sort of misfortune if we were put in the same cell or something, we were put in the same prison. And um, so he was put through the system and I was kept in maximum security the whole time. And this is where I believe in this higher power thing. I was moved to, to Burrellan Correctional Centre and at the time it was run by Circo. It was a private prison. Even though Arthur Gorey, I, I got NA meetings in there and I got NA books in there and I did a lot of stuff. When I got to Burrellan, the general manager there, was his name was Guy Buff. I'm still in communication with him. He's in London. He's retired now. And he was the head of Circo Australia. And he called me up and he said, I hear really good stuff about you and this anti-drug stuff you've got going on. He said, I've got a dream. He said, I've got a dream about opening a drug rehab in prison in Australia. He said, it's never been done. He said, can it be done? I said, can you put me in a unit where no one else can get into it? He said, fucking oath I can. I said, can you give me staff that won't bring drugs into their fucking unit? He said, I can try. He was a real good bloke, you know, he was a real honest. Uh, yeah. He said, I can try. I said, well, I can help you set it up. So we did. He used to come down every month, once a month, and sit down in the jail. Because we had, we had our own food. We cooked all our own food in the unit. We ran NA meetings in the unit. I got people from outside to come in and do NA meetings. I got yoga teacher to come in. She was a good sort. So everyone wanted to do yoga. You know, I was mm. smart. So I was using the system against it, you know, for itself. I ran a 12-step program, like a rehab. I ran a rehab within the jail. There was 30 guys in that, in that unit. And the whole 30 guys were clean. Mm. So everyone was clean. We all did urines. We all did everything, you know. But we also had a lot of perks. We had special visits in the special mm. area, not in the visiting area. A lot we, of women got pregnant. And a lot of women got pregnant because, you, know, <laughs> you know, we had a lot of perks. Mm. And his only stipulation was do not use. And my only stipulation was in the unit was if you want to use drugs, that's your business. Get the fuck out of the unit. Mm. If you don't want to use drugs, stay here and we'll teach you how to stay here. And I was lucky that I had a guy that was the muscle. Mm. We'll call him the muscle. I was need one of them. And he, you know, he was pretty notorious. You know, they reckon there was nine jail murders and he was in doing a life lag. And he, was, and he used to say to them, if I catch you, you're not break your fucking arms and throw you down the stairs. So he had a, had a motivation. But the guys didn't just stay clean for that reason. You know, they, they stayed clean because there was a whole gang of us. We had a... That therapeutic value again of one addict helping another. And we'd done really well. And what happened was I was, I was two months off having a, the first NA convention in a prison. He'd, he'd okayed it. We had all the clearance go through and he got taken back to London. And the new general manager came in and crushed everything. Mm. And we lost it. You know, for, for about 18 months, we had a full rehab within a jail. Mm. And it was brilliant. And I, as you said, I've got lots of mates who were clean, you know, f- Clean a long time now, clean 15, 20 years, yeah. And you call them mates because you develop something like a bond with each other. It's not too dissimilar that people have been to war together. 100%. And, you know, there's one guy in particular, 
<clears throat> he's a really successful, extremely rich, smart individual. You know, he's, he was the porn king. He owned on the Porn Australia and he was in jail. He'd never been in trouble before and we're training together. And I see the track marks on his arms. I said, what's that shit? Junkie. I'm not a fucking junkie. What do you mean I'm fucking not a junkie? I said, mate, so that's not bird shit on your arm. What's on your arm? You know, it's got this big black track mark. He goes, oh, I shot a bit of speed up. I said, what are you in for, mate? He said, oh, some cunts robbed me, so I bashed them. I said, what happened? He said, oh, a couple of junkies fucking broke into my house and stole some gear and stole me briefcase. And they said, I knew where they were because I used to buy gear off them. So I kidnapped, I bashed them and kidnapped them. I, then I got scared because I'd bashed them so bad. He's a big boy. He said, so I, I drove to the police station in my Mercedes S500s and uh, went to the police station and said, oh, I've captured a couple of blokes who robbed me. And the copper said, where are they? And he said, they're in the car. And the coppers walk out and they go, where? He goes, in the boot. <laughs> He's charged with deprivation of liberty, mm. fucking kidnapping, assault. The guy get eight, eight, eight years jail. Mm-hmm. I said, you're not a junkie? Mm. You know, and he's been clean ever since, you know. I love him. He's, he's married. He's got kids now. And he says it all the time. He says, I can't believe how in, embarrassed I was when you called me a junkie and how indignified I was. Like, how dare you call me a junkie? You know, I'm a multi-millionaire businessman. Mm. And, you know, and that guy's been clean to this day and he's still clean, you know, and there's a lot of them. But it must, that must feel really rewarding to know that you've played a pivotal part in, you know, in, in, in helping people create lives that are full of good memories? I think I was given a gift in, in my life mm. to get out of where I got out of, and that was an understanding of how important life is. I, 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 don't, I, I tell this story, but I don't tell it often. In 1985, when I relapsed, I, I, my daughters were only three years of age, I was on 120 mil of methadone which you know what methadone is, a horrible drug. Killed two elephants. And I was trying to use on top of the methadone. And, I, and I'm not a religious person. I had two dreams. This is a true story. I was staying in this little $25 room night in, in um, Bondi Beach. The girl I was with was standing on the corner working. She was prostituting. I had two dreams. The first dream I had was my daughters and I were walking along Bondi Beach when they were about eight years of age and I'm holding their hands. They were three at the time, the twins. That was a dream. I woke up the next morning and thought, that was a weird dream. You know, I was holding my kids' hands walking along the beach. Go to sleep. Forget about it, you fucking silly old junkie. The next night I dreamt, this is a, this dream blows my brain. I, didn't, I dreamt that I died. In this dream, I'm, I've died. And I'm on my way to wherever you go. And I just remember the fear. The fear. It was like walking through cussings strapped up with fucking heroin. I could feel the coldness and the fear. And, and I'm thinking, okay, I've got to talk my way out of this. And I'm, in my head, I'm going, the people I shot, they weren't innocent people. They were gangsters and they were fucking horrible cunts, you know. And the people that I robbed, you know, most of them were institutions, you know. And I'm, I'm justifying everything. And I get to where I'm going. This is like what I'd call the pearly gates. There's, there's no gates, but there's a stop. There's a guy there, the long hair. This is the typical imagination, what you'd imagine would be whoever's at the gate. And I said, hey, listen, man, you know, like everyone I fucking shot, they were, they were pieces of shit, you know. And it was tit for tat. And, and he's smiling. I said, most of the stuff I did is, you know, I was an addict and I was fucking, you know, and he's smiling and he said, you don't get it, do you, Ron? And I just remember that cold, terrifying feeling. He said, you committed the greatest sin man can commit. And I went, oh, fuck, I'm in trouble. And then he stopped and he said, you wasted the gift of life. Well. And I woke up the next morning and I went to detox and jumped off 120 milodone and I've been clean ever since. And what's that, 37 years? 
37 on the 3rd of March, which is six oh. weeks away from 37 years. Oh. After that dream, that dream still scared. Even if you want to talk it now, I get emotional and I get that real, oh, that was something, something special there. There was something way beyond human recognition or my intelligence. Way beyond my intelligence. I'll give you a message. Yeah. yeah. Let's fast forward. You get out of jail. You done 10, didn't you? I did eight. You done eight? Yep. What, what did you get released to? I'm blessed. I got released. I went from there straight to my best friend, Frank, the Greek the Greek guy that's my whole life, mm. my brother. A multi-million dollar mansion sitting in the water at San Susie. So I go straight there. You know, I come from a cell. And Frank and I were together last weekend. I met him. He came to my book launch. Yeah. Is that him? Yeah, yeah. 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 And he said, you were mad. He said, you sat in your fucking room all day. Eight years straight in solitary confinement, in, in maximum security. I was mad. I was completely mad and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was like, what the fuck am I going to do? That's cutting out. Yeah, I thought, you know, what am I going to do? You know, like, um, I'm never going to fall in love again. My wife had left me, of course, while I was doing the sentence. She'd gone back to America. I'm partial to a good-looking girl. And I thought, fuck, you know, my life's finished. I'm, I was 57 years of age. I thought, Jesus Christ, you know, what, what are you going to do, you know? And I've always been a good money earner, but, you know. And I thought, well, I still have my jewellery company, so I can go back to do jewellery. And the parole board said to me, you can't do jewellery. I said, what? I said, well, on your, on your defence, you said you were importing emeralds from Brazil and it was cocaine. We're not going to let you bring jewellery into the country. I said, okay, well, I'll go back to drug and alcohol. No, we're not going to let you do drug and alcohol because you might sell drugs to the fucking clients. Mm-hmm. I'm like, are you serious? I'm just coming to jail. And I said to the parole officer, there's three things I'm good at. Jewellery, drug and alcohol, and fucking smuggling. Which one do you want me to do? She said, oh, you can't say that to me. I said, well, you're putting me in a position. Cut a long story short, I said, I'm going to open a car business because I'm good. I love cars. You've had some good ones. And we opened up a company called Sugarman Classics and we started importing Corvettes from America. But some people might call it luck. I don't know what it is. I call it divine intervention. I imported C1 Corvettes before they were very popular in Australia. I was paying 40 grand for cars in America. And within five years, well, I sold one recently for 390000 it just went completely out of control. They're the most fashionable car in Australia today. Mm. The C1 Corvette has now become the most popular car nearly worldwide. The same car I paid forty grand for, you couldn't buy for one hundred and forty grand in America. They'd gone up so much and they've increased. We stay open, Sugarman Classics. I met a new girl. She was absolutely beautiful. She's really intelligent, fucking a lot smarter than I am. And she ran the company. She ran the company. I did all the hiring and firing and buying and designing. She ran all the books and she just took control of me, basically. And she gave me a reason to live. And then she's, <clears throat> we had a child, you know, we had a, well, my little boy's seven, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a joy. And then we've got a little three year old girl. But we worked hard, you know. People say to me, Oh, you're lucky. I say, Yeah, mate, I'm lucky. I work 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. The harder the I work, the luckier, luckier I, I get. get. And yeah. I say to all, and then, you know, that's, that's one of my sayings I say it all the time. Now, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And I try not to harm people. You know, you got to say in Russia, I always try to give more than I take. I'm a big believer in that. I, I've never stopped going to meetings. I opened a company called The Truth About Addiction. It's a private company where I help people that can't go to NA meetings or AA meetings because of their, their profiles. You know, people that mm. you know, might have a job where they can't come out and say, I'm, a, I'm snorting copious amounts of cocaine and my life's unmanageable. So they come to me and they do a private rehab with me. That became a monster. It became so successful that it nearly burnt me out. Yeah. I had to cut back. There's so many people out there suffering today from drug addiction, alcohol addiction, gambling. Gamblers are the – mate, I got more, I got more gamblers in the, this last year 
I've had more gamblers than I've had bloody drug addicts, just about, you know? Where can people find you, mate? You can follow you on Instagram? Yeah, they can follow me on Instagram and The Truth, Truth about, about Addiction, Ron, The Truth About Addiction. Um, our podcast is called The Truth About Addiction as well. Let's, give uh, them a follow, give Ron a follow. Where, where can they, they download? YouTube, um, Spotify. We, we, we're just trying to carry a message. You know, my motivation is just to try to get a message out there to say, if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, there's a way out. Mm. You know? and, and I say to people, people ring me up and they, they think, oh, I can't afford your, your, your services. And I say, no, you can't afford not to have my services. Yeah. And if you can't afford my services, I'll direct you to somewhere else. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll put you in the right direction. It's not all about money. I'm not motivated by money, you know. I'm, I'm pretty happy. I'm, I'm okay, you know. Like, the whole thing that I care about is you ringing me up in 12 months' time and saying, mate, I fucking got a job. I've got a new girl. My girl's pregnant. I haven't, had a, I haven't had a punt, you know. That's the, that's the reward that I get. I, I get rewarded in a different way, you know. My high power takes care of me physically, financially, and spiritually, you know. I really don't really have to do much. All I've got to do is do what I do on a daily basis, remain humble and remain centred that I'm not doing this on my own, that there's a power greater than myself that's restoring me to sanity. Put me hand out and say to anybody, and I mean anybody, whether you're the fucking waitress or the owner or the CEO, you're the same to me. I don't care who you are. I'm not impressed by what you tell me. I'm impressed by what you do. And I've got no judgment. I don't care. If you want to use drugs, that's fine. Honestly. That's got nothing to do with me. It's none of my business. If you want to stop using drugs, then that's my business. And then I'll come in and I'll intervene. On that note, Ron Ishwood, thanks for being on the stick-up. Oh, thanks, Russell. Thanks very much, mate. I really enjoyed it.